Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. It's December 1899 and the British have already registered 3,000 casualties in various battles across South Africa. The latest we heard about was the Battle of Colenso on the 15th of December in Natal, where the British casualty rate topped 1,130 with over 700 wounded and the result cost Commander-in-Chief General Buller his job. These are numbers that also alarmed the public and the government back in London. The Boers had been perceived as a shambolic rabble, ripe for the plucking. The gold bugs who owned the mines and financed the gold diggings back in Johannesburg had propagated and pushed for a war. Now their brethren were paying the price in blood for their greed and their imperialist aims. The Boers were no pushovers. In fact, in all major battles between October and December, they had consistently outfought and outthought the British across the country in different environments. Sir Redverse Buller was the officer in command of the British forces in South Africa, but after the calamity of Colenso, Lord Roberts was selected to take over duties, although he was still in Ireland. Roberts's staff officer was Lord Kitchener, who was to become famous in the First World War for his large moustached poster and his finger pointed out and the sentence that read, Your country needs you. Right now, his country needed him in South Africa. Buller had blundered his way through the battles of Colenso with 19,000 men. Facing him were around 4,500 Boers, and he failed to defeat the markedly smaller force. After the battle, Buller retreated to the ten town of Freer, south of the surging Tugela River, and there he began to recover somewhat. But that was short-lived. A telegram arrived from London. He had expected it and said he was superseded as general officer commanding in South Africa and relegated to officer commanding only in the province of Natal. Buller was now worried about his replacement, Lord Roberts. After all, it was Roberts's only son, Freddie Roberts, who had died of his wounds during the Battle of Colenso in a suicide mission to try and save 10 guns of the field artillery that Colonel Long had pushed too far ahead of the troops. Long was also dead. It was Buller who asked for volunteers for that suicide mission. Now the father of the man he'd sent on a death mission was to be his boss. Buller drafted the cable to send to Roberts about his son's death, which he'd sent before realizing who was his new commander. The cable was curt and unemotional. It read, Your gallant son died today. Condolences, Buller. Talk about cold. Roberts was a political general and had spent over 40 years in India where he'd dominated the subcontinent. He was a descendant of the British rulers in India, running the civil service, and he was a born diplomat, a true imperialist with all the trimmings. He was broad-shouldered but also absurdly short, five foot two, and extremely fit for a 67-year-old. He looked like a professional Jack Russell terrier, some said. Lord Roberts also knew the great dictum espoused by the military thinker Clausewitz that war was politics by other means. He was far more refined in working the imperial system than Buller, who was by nature a roustabout, a man's man. When Buller had sent his infamous telegram to the war office after Colenso, effectively suggesting to let Ladysmith be captured, Roberts was at hand, pushing to take over and telling all and sundry about what he'd do if he was in charge. 
On a personal note, before Lord Roberts had received the telegram about his son's death, he was on board a ship heading from Ireland, where he lived, to Southampton. Literally, as he disembarked, he learned the fate of Freddie Roberts and almost collapsed. After composing himself, and a little later, he wrote to his wife, The rent in my heart seems to stifle all feelings. I could not help thinking how different it would have been if our dear boy had been with me. Honours, rewards, and congratulations have no value to me. Freddie Roberts, you see, had won a Victoria Cross, but that's scant reward for a father, even a military father. Boer soldier Dennis Reitz, who wrote a highly informative book after the war, described how he and his men on the front near Colenso felt. He had fought in the First Boer War of 1881, where the British had suffered a terrible defeat at Majuba Hill. Now he wrote of Colenso. This time, however, their reverses seemed only to render the British more determined, but the future being mercifully hidden from us, we confidently awaited the opening of peace negotiations and the surrender of Ladysmith. He continues, I spent an interesting time riding up and down the line, and as things were quiet, a party of us even the road through the river one morning to inspect the spot where the British guns had been captured and Lord Robert's son killed in the recent battle. There were only decomposing horses and broken rifles lying about. Back in England, Roberts was stoic and he knew that the two biggest problems for the British in South Africa were both their lack of mobility and the fact that the war office had planned for a small clash. This had now turned into a big war, and that meant more men and supplies had to be shipped to South Africa. In fact, it turned into the biggest war for the British since the Napoleonic conflict 90 years before, and they needed to bolster their troop numbers while changing their tactics quickly, or be defeated by a tiny army of men who were poor, rural, and biblical. The Boers were anachronistic in their individuality in a modern world, as well as being armed with the latest weapons. You can perhaps see the similarities with uh, the conflict in Afghanistan, perhaps. Men perceived as anachronistic in the modern world, locked in some previous age, yet armed with the latest laser-guided missiles and long-range cannon. Well, back in England, the hearts of the citizens of the empire were engulfed in nationalist fervour. Students of history will note the direct dialectic from the South African War to the Great War of 1914-18. The shock of what was known as Black Week in Britain can't be underestimated. It was what Thomas Pakenham called an emotional spasm of astonishment, frustration and humiliation. It also occurred simultaneously with an Anglophobia which developed in Germany and the Franco-Prussian Empire and was directly related to the Anglo-Boer War which saw the Teutonic Boers with their similar sounding language and names Kruger, Oosthuizen, Delaray, Reitz, Boerter, Jordan, Van der Merwe facing off against the self-righteous empire state with its swaggering elites and superciliousnesses, its double-barreled names like Foster Smith and St. John Marsdale. Part-time author and writer Bertha Singe wrote in 1899 and summed up the moment the British Empire realised the uppity Boers had become something more than a sideshow. Picture the newsboys at the corners shouting, Terrible reverse of British troops, loss of 2,000. People walked about speaking in whispers and muttering. No one goes to theatres, concert rooms are empty, new books fall flat 
nothing is spoken of save the war. We must remember this. There was no precedent in British military history for this kind of battle dishonour. White flag, surrender, Talana, Nicholson's Neck, Modarafid, Storenberg, Colenso. 2,000 British troops were being held prisoner in Pretoria, and the war was only two months old. A clash in Africa that had been a small footnote two months ago was now a major headline. But it also inspired a wave of colonial patriotism that had been set in motion across the globe, where British imperialists fell over themselves to lend a hand and their youthful men to the war. The governments of each dominion, with the exclusion of the Cape, offered to send soldiers and material. Australia, Canada, New Zealand, India, the West Indies. What this led to immediately were 29,000 white colonial troops from across the world arriving in South Africa to fight their Boers, driving up the total number to 50,000 eventually in this war, believe it or not, to over 180,000 men. As the British invaded South Africa, literally at that moment to the month, the Germans decided to double the size of their navy. The timing is important. Britain and Germany were in an industrial wrestling match, and South Africa was the symbolic playground at this point. It was a box to tick in the inexorable move towards the massive world war that destroyed an empire in 14 years' time. A violent propaganda war had broken out in Europe, with Transvaal President Paul Kruger's envoy in Brussels, Dr. Leitz, fanning the anti-British fervour. The narrative he wove was warped even by standards of that day. Dr. Leitz claimed that the British tortured, raped civilians, murdered prisoners, and ominously he claimed the British were being used by what he called the Jewish financiers. That seemed to resonate in Germany. This is a dark thought, is it not? So, in this hate and diatribe, we see the embers of our future world of the 20th century with all its destruction and poison and the murky logic of Hitler and his sycophants. The die was cast. 50,000 men would die in the South African War, 50 million in the Second World War. This is the echo, the undeniable resonance, where moments decades away are so similar they're airy. I should also say a word here about the British Army preparation. Their Ordnance Commander Brackenbury was threatening to resign because of a number of glaring errors which were kept secret at the time of the Anglo-Boer War. For example, he realised that providing car key to 50,000 men was almost impossible. Britain didn't have enough cloth. This from a nation that had colonised the largest cotton-producing country in the world, India. Well, in the modern parlance, we could just tweet L-O-L. The second error was far more serious. The war office had just changed their main weapon from the Lee Metford rifle to the Lee Enfield. The two weapons were similar in terms of ammunition. They both used a .303, but were very different in terms of how the rifling worked inside the barrel. This had one major effect. It changed the sighting, how you set the sights. Can you believe that the first wave of British troops had headed off to South Africa with rifles that fired 30 centimetres to the right at 500 metres? So every time they aimed at something about half a kilometre away, the bullet actually ended up the length of your arm to the elbow to the right. No wonder Boer casualties were so light. Of course, there are other reasons, but that, I'm sure, also helped. A third problem was the British army just was not mobile enough and could not call up enough men. 
so they launched the local yeomanry brigade. This was a return to almost a medieval English call-up process, where towns and villages would form units of men and they would go to war together. The 29,000 new troops would come largely from local units in the colonies and England itself, and many from England where yeomanry brigades started. Back in South Africa, it was a momentous day, the day after the Battle of Colenso, and I'll tell you why. For it's the 16th of December, an important day for the Boers. That was the day they call Dingaan's Day, or the Day of the Covenant, the Battle of Blood River in 1838. A small group of Boers had faced off against the might of the Zulu army, 450 men against 10,000. They'd prayed for salvation, then they'd defeated Dingaan's army. From that day to this, the 16th of December is buried deep in the consciousness of South Africa, whatever you believe politically. And the 16th of December happened to be the day after the Battle of Colenso, where the British force of 19,000 had been sent packing by a tiny Boer force of 4,500. You can see why it was perceived as a clash inspired by a higher force. God was on their side. And it was in Pretoria that President Paul Kruger attended church on the Day of the Covenant and told the small group of women who'd gathered in the building, the men of course were away fighting, that the green hills of Natal had been the site where the Lord had delivered them from their enemies. Zulu, British, black, white to the Boer, it didn't matter. Symbolism aside, strategically the Boers now were in a position to win the war at this moment, but it needed immediate action. Paul Kruger, who was a truly incredible leader, no two is about it, knew that this was the reality. While his commanders on the ground were quite happy to soak up the British attacks and blood their noses, Kruger seemed to have the entire map of South Africa in his head, and he could feel the geography, so to speak, and he wanted action. But even General Louis Boerter, his cleverest and most able leader, knew that a full frontal assault could fail. So let's take a breath and consider other aspects of this conflict which are both fascinating and incriminating. For instance, the gold miners of Johannesburg had conspired with Lord Alfred Milner, the governor of the Cape, and Cecil John Rhodes to force action in the country. It was all about cheap labour. The miners had turned to indented Chinese workers from the east because black South Africans were not willing to be sent underground when they were. They were being paid huge wages by the standard of the 19th century. Up to 60 shillings a day, which of course was far less than the white miners, or miners in Australia and California, but it was more than the capitalists on the Rand wanted to pay. Gold mine owners Alfred Bight and Cecil John Rhodes were greedy men. They wanted more. At the time, the Boers controlled the gold mines after the English-speaking Eightlanders fled. The Boers immediately slashed the black miners' wages and then wrote about it. They crowed in the miners' paper called the Standard and Diggers News. This was understood by mine owners, who began to rethink their view about who should run their mines after the war. Why not the Boers if they could enforce such cheap labour? It was a win-win for the mine owners, most of whom were English. This fact, I'm afraid, has resonated in South Africa to this day. White mine owners closed deals with the future apartheid government to ensure cheap, unskilled workers mined the gold for a pittance. It helped reinforce black subjugation. But there are other social issues the Boer War let loose. The Boer women, for example, the froes or wives, changes were taking place on their farms. While most men were away, the women were actually running the production of the economy in much of the Transvaal and Free State. 
By force of necessity, women were now in control of money, land and resources. It was a heady mix and no doubt had a ramification on the entire history of South Africa during and after this war. However, it was to prove their undoing in the short term, as the British simultaneously recognised how powerful the women were and then threw them into concentration camps. But that was later in the story, and I'll explain how British propaganda worked to turn Boer women into the arch-enemy, conniving, cunning, and to be treated harshly. So at this time, 1899 December, the preparations for a large army, which was to include Australians, New Zealanders, Irish, West Indians, Canadians, and other members of the British Empire, were being made. In the meantime, the city of Ladysmith, not far from where Buller camped, was experiencing a fatigue of a different kind as the siege wore on to its third month. We'll stop at this point and next week we'll investigate what was going on in Ladysmith where over 13,500 British troops were trapped facing Boer long-range cannon and skirmishes every day. Please remember to rate this podcast on iTunes so we get the story of the Anglo-Boer War that has almost been forgotten in the public arena. You're welcome to send me a direct message on Twitter at Des Latham. That's at D-E-S-L-A-T-H-A-M. Des Latham. Goodbye. <laughs> Oh, bring me to the Transvaal, there where my